0: you. Welcome back to a new session from the Divine Healing Teaching Series and if you remember we are in the third chapter of this series where we answer objections to healing and in our last session we discussed about God's sovereignty and how this concept can stand in the way of our faith for healing and can be a blockage to our mind if it's not understood correctly and then we discussed about God's kingdom and about the already but not yet theological concept and how to understand that concept in the right way, in the biblical way, so that it will not block our faith for healing and it will not stop our conviction about healing. And today we're continuing with something even more exciting and that is about Job's sickness. Job's sufferings. What about Job's sufferings? If the Bible says that we have a right to healing of any sickness, any person, anytime, anywhere, how does that fit with Job's boils? And the objection uh, sounds like this. God allowed and even sent sickness on Job to teach him something. Why wouldn't he do the same thing with me today? So for some reason, whenever we are sick, where we are in need of healing from God, we immediately identify ourselves with all these situations from the Bible uh, where God didn't heal or God allowed sickness like Job or Paul's thorn or other situations that I mentioned before. <clears throat> and let's see how we answer this objection. The short answer to this objection is that Job was not a new creation. He was not in the New Testament. But we will develop more uh, uh, and we'll give a more detailed answer to this objection. First and foremost, we need to understand that it was not God who wanted sickness on Job. He is not the one who gave sickness to Job. It was was Satan who attacked Job. It was Satan who came before God and asked for, for a trial on Job. And then he went and put those boils and those torments on Job. But it wasn't God. Second, I want us to understand that Job suffered only for a little while. His sufferings were not permanent or forever. The Bible doesn't mention the exact period of time, but it says uh, that uh, Job mentions days and months, not years. And the best approximation, many, many Christians believe that it was around nine months. But again, the Bible doesn't mention exactly how much. But the important thing is that at the end of of that period, Job got healed and he received double, his fortunes, his wealth was doubled, his lifespan was increased, his uh, sons and daughters were restored and they were more beautiful than before. And we see that in the book of Job in chapter 42 verse 10 to 16. If you have our Bibles ready, let's read it together. I'll be reading from the New King James Version, but you are welcome to use any English translation you have available. Let's read it together. And the Lord restored Job's losses. Again, and the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then all his brothers, all his sisters, and all those who had been his acquaintances before came to him and ate food with him in his house. And they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and each a ring of gold. Yes, it seems that here the Bible says that the adversity was brought by the Lord. But we will see in the whole context of the Bible that it, wasn't, it cannot be the Lord who brought that to Job it it must have been his the writer's limited understanding and revelation we will see other verses other passages in Job that uh, talk about things that are kind of contrary to who the Lord is each one gave him a piece of silver and each a ring of gold now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning for he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first Jemima, the name of the second Ketia, and the name of the third Keren In all the land were found no women so beautiful as the daughters of Job, And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. Amen. We see in this verse that God healed Job. He doubled his fortunes. He lived a long life, uh, 140 years. God gave him uh, new sons and daughters, more beautiful than before. So if you identify yourself with Job, you should also eventually be healed. Your possessions should be restored and doubled. Your sons and daughters, you you should experience what Job experienced because he didn't stay in that state forever. He didn't stay in that sickness forever. God, I, I see God like he was eager to restore Job, to heal Job. So whenever you identify yourself with Job, you should also be healed in the end, amen? The third thing I want us to notice is that it seems that Job was not a Jew. What I mean is that he wasn't in in the proximity of Abraham or the people of Israel when they were with Moses. He was not a Jew and he lived somewhere southeast southeast of Israel between 2,000 and 1,000 before Christ. He lived somewhere after Noah's uh, flood and before Moses and the commandments. And the best approximation places him living while the sons of Jacob were in Egypt, in slavery in Egypt. But he wasn't a part of the people of Israel. That means he didn't have any connection with Abraham, with the law of Moses and the commandments. And he didn't have any promises from God on which to place his faith. That is an important thing. The third thing that we want, I want us to understand and notice about Job is that he didn't have the covenant that Abraham had with God. He didn't have the law and the commandments by which the people of, Israel were, people of Israel were able to have life, access to life, and he didn't have any other promises from God on healing on which he could have based his faith upon. He even says in Job 9, that there was no mediator between God and him like we have Jesus today. Let's read Job 9, verses 32 to 35. For he is not a man as I am that I may answer him and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me and do not let dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him. But it is not so with me. There was no mediator between Job and, G- and God to make peace. As we have Jesus Christ who made peace between God and us and paid for our sins and paid for our healing. Amen. So Job didn't have all that. That's an important thing that makes a difference between him and us today. And I want us to, to look at one more passage that talks about the mediator that we have today in 1st Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 to 6. It says this. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So whoever identifies with Job and his sufferings actually places himself or herself outside of the law of Moses and outside of the new covenant in Christ. I don't want to be mean here. But that's the truth. If you identify yourself with Job, you come out of even the law of Moses. We know that the Gentiles were not under the law of Moses, only the people of Israel, but you come even out of that too. And also you place yourself also outside of the new covenant that you have with Jesus Christ. If you believed in Jesus Christ and if you have a personal relationship with him, and when you identify yourself with Job, you come out of that, you place yourself out of, of that covenant because Job didn't have Jesus Christ. He didn't have a covenant with God. And it's actually offensive. I, I go even more further on. It's actually offensive to the sacrifice of Jesus, to place yourself in, in Job's shoes, to identify yourself with Job and say that God allows sickness today. It is offensive to the to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross because he paid such a high price that we might have healing that Job didn't have. He didn't know about Jesus Christ. But then even in Job's case, let's go back, in his state, with his revelation, in his time, with his level of understanding, he didn't have the promises. He didn't have any rights to God, to, uh, to, for healing to God. He didn't have any rights to healing before God and no mediator. We see that still God had mercy on him and healed him and blessed him twice more than he had before. So this is our God. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of goodness. He's a God who wants, he's capable and always wants to heal you. He's always willing and he did that for Job Even though Job didn't have any promise. He didn't promise anything to Job. That's where God is. Amen. And I want us to read one more passage from Job chapter 1 verse 21. Where it says this. And he said, Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This verse is usually mentioned uh, during funerals and we also have some worship songs that use this verse as a truth. We, for instance, we have the song Blessed be the name of the Lord where we, there is a bridge there that says He gives and takes away. He gives and takes away. My heart will choose to say Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now let's see, is this verse true for the new creation and for God in general? No, of course not. It is not true for the new creation period, for the New Testament and for God in general. It's not true about God in general, why? Because this verse was, is, is mentioned by Job himself and is based on his limited knowledge and revelation about God. For instance, he didn't even know that there was a Satan. He didn't know about the existence of Satan. He only knew some things about God and the Bible calls him righteous, whatever he knew about God, he applied in his day-to-day life. And because of that he was righteous, but his knowledge and understanding and revelation was very limited. And as we've mentioned before, he didn't have a covenant with God like Abraham had. He didn't have access to the law of Moses and to the commandments. He didn't have a mediator. He didn't have a new covenant with God in Jesus Christ. He didn't have any promises on healing from God. His revelation was limited, so his words were based on what he knew. So that was true for him, but it's not true today for us. And it's not true about God. God never takes away anyone and anything. It is Satan. It is the devil who takes away, who kills and destroys. God is a God who always gives good gifts to people. He's a good God. And we see that in James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So every good gift comes from the Father, from God. Nothing bad comes from the Father. He doesn't kill anyone, he doesn't take anyone. It is the devil and Satan who does that. And this is so important for us to understand. And I hope by everything I said about Job, about his sufferings, and the answers that I brought to this objection, I hope that I killed once and for all this objection and that it will never stand in the way of your faith for healing. Because we as Christians, as believers, as born again believers in Christ Jesus, we live in a new time, in a New Testament where we have so many promises better than the the law and better than the commandments better than the law of Moses, we have better promises and we have a better covenant and we have a right, we have access to healing, we have more revelation and knowledge about God. He revealed his heart, he revealed his love, he revealed his grace to us and that's amazing. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's move on to the next objection which is Jesus in his hometown and the objection sounds like this. Even Jesus couldn't heal all people in his hometown because of their unbelief. So whenever we are faced with a sickness to pray, to minister to ourselves and to other people, this objection comes so often in our minds and is put there by the devil. That even Jesus who was the son of God was not able to heal anyone anytime anywhere there is actually a situation in the new testament when he couldn't heal anyone so you cannot say that healing is for any sickness for anyone anytime anywhere really let's see that let's answer this objection and put to rest this uh, objection that tries to destroy our faith for healing there are two accounts in the gospel and the gospels of the same situation where Jesus was in his hometown and the the Bible seems to mention that he didn't or couldn't heal everybody. And one of the accounts is more complete than the other. And people know usually one of them and neglect the other one. But the, the two of them, they complete each other. And you see some things in the other one that you don't see in the, uh, in the first one. And these two accounts are from Matthew uh, chapter 13 verses 53 to 58 and Mark 6 verse 1. And we will read them both so that we can see the differences. Let's read first Matthew 13, 53 to 58. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? Here we can see that Mary didn't remain a virgin. She had more sons and daughters. Jesus had brothers. His brothers were James, Joseph, Simon and Judas after the flesh. And his sisters, he also had sisters. Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. This is important to remember. So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in in his own country and and in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So this is the first account. Let's see the second account in Mark chapter 6 verses 1 to 6. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? These things, And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. Again, we see the same thing. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. This is new. It's different from the previous account. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. We see that in Matthew 13 58 the verse says this. Now he did He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. The Bible doesn't say that Jesus didn't do any works there, any mighty works. But it says that Jesus didn't do many mighty works. And it's a difference. He did some mighty works. He didn't do many works, but he did some. Then in Mark 6 verse 5, the Bible says that everyone sick who came to Jesus and Jesus laid his hands on them, they were healed. So on those that Jesus laid his hands on, they were healed. There was never a person on whom Jesus laid his hands and left him or her sick. The verse says this, he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick, sick people and healed them. So on those that he laid his hands upon, they were healed. Both accounts show clearly that the whole city in general was offended at him. We see that in Matthew thirteen fifty seven and Mark 6, verse 3. Now when people are offended at you, they don't line up before you so that you would lay your hands over them or minister to them. They usually stay at a distance. They talk, they gossip. They talk about what you're doing, but they stay at a distance. They don't come for ministry. Have you ever been offended by a sermon or by a preacher in a church? did you at the end of the service did you have any desire to go for ministry when you were offended of what that preacher said no most of the times no or if you go down there it's for other reasons it's not for out of good reasons so when people are offended when these people that were offended they didn't want to have anything to do with jesus or with what he was doing there so that they didn't even come up to jesus for Jesus to lay his hands on them. So they didn't believe Jesus, they disconsidered him, and they didn't even come for ministry to receive healing. But those who came, Jesus laid his hands on them and healed them all. Amen? And also, maybe there weren't there hundreds and thousands of people because the city of Nazareth was a small city in itself. So we've seen here first that uh, Jesus didn't do many, not any Uh, mighty works there. Then in Mark 6, 5, we saw that on anyone that Jesus laid his hands on, he healed them all. And finally, we see that those people that uh, were in unbelief were actually offended on what he was saying, what he was preaching, and they didn't even come for ministry. That's what usually happens when someone is offended. Amen. So I hope I killed this objection as well and it will never stand in the way of your faith for healing again. Let's move on to another objection uh, and that is that the disciples had a failure. And the objection sounds like this. There is a case in the New Testament in the Gospels when the disciples couldn't heal someone. So not everyone gets healed, that's the objection. Let's see if that's true. Let's try to answer this objection. There are again two accounts in the gospel of the same situation where the disciples had a failure. When the disciples couldn't cast out a demon and they came and asked Jesus why they couldn't do it. Those accounts are in Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 to 21 and Mark 9, verses 14 to 29. Let's read the first account in Matthew 17, verses 14 to 21. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him, and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. Uh, If a preacher would say today, Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how would you feel? But Jesus didn't mind. And he said the things, he spoke about the things as they were. Verse 18. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief. That's the answer. Because of your unbelief. It wasn't God. It wasn't the demon. It wasn't the multitudes. It wasn't anyone but your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will, it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. And usually some of the Bible translations add in parentheses after this kind, they add this kind of demon. But I think that the Bible, this passage doesn't talk about this kind of demon, but he talks about, Jesus talks about this kind of unbelief because the context was unbelief. It says, because of your unbelief, if you have faith. And then, but this kind of unbelief does not go, does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So the unbelief in your mind is destroyed by prayer and fasting. And even if you choose to put there the kind of demon, this kind of demon doesn't come out uh, unless there is prayer and fasting. The truth is that prayer and fasting will not act directly on demons. Demons do not go out when you don't eat. That's no direct correlation. When you fast and pray, you work on your faith, work on your unbelief, you destroy your unbelief, and indirectly the demon goes away because more power and faith is released out of you. So it goes both ways, but it makes more sense that Jesus was referring to this kind of unbelief than this kind of demon, amen? Because there's no qualification, Jesus has already given them in Luke ten nineteen. He has given them all authority over all the power of the enemy. And he said, nothing shall hurt you by any means. So decide, the disciples had authority and power over all the power of the devil, any demon. Amen. So here if he was talking about unbelief. Let's read the second account in Mark chapter 9 verses 14 to 29. And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes its teeth. And becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out. But they could not. That's sad. But in this situation they could not. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Death and dumb spirit, I commend you. Come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said he is dead. But Luke verse 27, But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, this kind, again, with no qualification, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. And again, here Jesus talks about unbelief. He said previously, O faithless generation. So you see here, it's a little bit different. He doesn't say because of your unbelief. He just goes straight to say that this kind cannot come out by nothing, by nothing but prayer and fasting. But previously, in verse 19, he said, "Oh, faithless generation. So the reason again, it was unbelief, not anything else. It was the disciples' unbelief. What I want us to notice, that in both accounts, this wasn't supposed to happen. This failure wasn't supposed to happen. Jesus expected the disciples to be able to heal the boy. He rebuked them harshly for their unbelief, as we've seen in both accounts. And then Jesus healed the boy, showing that it was his will for him to be healed. So in the end, eventually the boy got healed. Even if the disciples had a failure, it wasn't supposed to happen that way. And Jesus rebuked them for their unbelief. So again, I believe, I hope their. By saying all these things, I also killed this objection. You can never say that the disciples had a failure, so I'm entitled to have failures and not see results. If you have a failure and you don't see results when you pray for sick people, it is because of your unbelief. That's the truth. I don't want to be mean, but that's the truth. It's not God's fault. It's not because God is sovereign, it's not because God has a certain plan, hidden will for that person. It's because of our unbelief, amen? And I don't want us to be condemned about this, and we'll talk about this later on. Don't receive any condemnation because when the word of God comes, there's no condemnation. This is not about condemnation. I don't want you to be condemned, but I want you and us To take more responsibility in this fight of faith and not put everything on God. And if you haven't heard about this before, it might be hard for you to swallow. It might be hard for you to receive it. But that's the truth. Consider it. Think about this. Do not reject it. But think about this. And compare it and read in the Bible. Compare different passages and see what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. Let's move on and see one more objection, a very famous one. The sixth one, Paul's physical infirmity in Galatia. The objection sounds like this. The apostle Paul, the great apostle Paul, had some kind of eye disease or other sickness according to Galatians 4 verses 12 to 15 and God would not heal him. So then God does not heal every time. Let's look at the text, Galatians chapter 4 verses 12 to 15 and let's read it together. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of a physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject. But you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. So, this is the passage that apparently supports that objection. First, I want us to know that the Greek word used for physical infirmity in this passage is the Greek word asthanea in verse 13, which literally means without strength or weak, it doesn't mean sick. So Paul uh, was with no strength, he was weak, and we'll see why. This is the first clue that this infirmity might not necessarily be a sickness. Second, the expression from verse 15, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me, which many commentators used to prove that Paul had an eye disease, actually meant something else in Paul's day, as it also means today. It meant that you love the person so much that you would even give up one of your most precious possessions for the person, your eyesight. Your most precious possession, your eyesight, you would give your eyes for the person you love. In other words, the Galatians loved Paul as the apple of their eye. That was an expression. It wasn't Sad because Paul had had an eye disease. And the passage says that the Galatians were willing to give their eyes to replace Paul's eyes. That's not, this is an expression which showed how much the Galatians enjoyed and loved Paul. And let's read one more passage that will uh, bring some more light of what happened here. In Acts chapter 14 verses 19 to 22 says this, Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in faith, and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. What I want us to notice here there are a few things. Third, actually the third thing. It seems that Paul was stoned and left for dead after he preached the good news in Lystra. When it says left for dead, the Bible says left for dead, it means that those who were throwing rocks at his head didn't stop until they thought he was actually dead and that he was killed. So they threw, they threw rocks at him, uh, on, uh, at his head, on his head until they thought he was dead. They left him for dead. However, afterwards, a group of believers gathered around him, we see that in Acts, and Paul got up. The day after this severe attack, Paul walked several miles to Derbe. The stoning occurred during Paul's first missionary journey. Both Derbe and Lystra are in Galatia. Isn't that interesting? So when Paul first brought the Galatians the good news in his first missionary journey, it says at first in Galatians says that when I preach to you at first, So when he uh, brought the good news to the Galatians, he had literally just been stoned to death. Having stones thrown at, at your head until people thought you were dead might do some damage to your eyes that could be described as an infirmity of the flesh or a bodily ailment. So that was the most probable issue that Galatians chapter four describes. Paul was bruised uh, was from a previous stoning. He was stoned and left for dead and then he traveled to Galatia and preached the gospel there. So I'm not disputing that the Apostle Paul wasn't weak in this passage, in this context, and in need of being cared for when he first came to the Galatians. The source of that weakness, however, came from persecution and not from sickness. So no, this verse from Galatians is not evidence that Paul had an eye disease or or that he was persistently sick. I hope that this objection is also killed, that when Paul went to Galatia, he was weak. He had a physical infirmity in his flesh because of persecution, because he, he had just been stoned in a, in a previous city. Amen? Uh, one more objection. Objection number seven. Epaphroditus was sick. And again, we see in Philippians chapter 2, verses 26 to 27. Let's read it together. Since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I send him the more eagerly, that when you see him again you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death. Not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. First, let's see that the Greek words for sickness and diseases everywhere else in the New Testament are malachia, nosos, kakos, or arostos. However, here in this passage, the term used for sick was asteneo, which means again weak. So when Paul says about Epaphroditus that he was sick. He was actually weak. He wasn't sick per se with a disease or sickness, because Paul, the Bible doesn't use any of those four Greek words that uh, are defined that mean sickness, actual sickness. And the whole context. And whenever you study, especially a controversial issue, read the whole context of uh, where you study, because you cannot take just the verse from this passage, Philippians two twenty six and say that Paul said about Epaphroditus that he was sick. Read the whole context, and if we read the whole context, it reveals by phrases like, sick almost unto death, it seems to be persecution. And then another phrase in verse 30, for the work of Christ he came close to death. So it wasn't because of sickness, it was because of the work for Christ, work of Christ. So it seems that Epaphroditus like we will see about Trophimus next. In Trophimus' case, he was weak and exhausted physically either from the travels with Paul or from persecution and beatings, which would exclude altogether physical sickness coming from the devil. Amen? And even if Epaphroditus was sick at one point, the passage above shows that he was healed. Amen? It says that he was healed. But It's true about many men of God. I heard uh, their testimony, I read their biographies. These men of God that heal people, that do crusades, very often they um, end up in exhaustion, in physical weakness and exhaustion. And some of them die prematurely because of that. Because they work and work for Christ and they feel that urgency that they need to do that and that and involve themselves in ministry and neglect Many times their family, their wife, their children, and that's not a good thing. But they tend to be exhausted. So I think uh, knowing Paul and knowing his attitude, how he didn't have a family, he didn't have a wife, he didn't have children. And knowing his zeal, I think he brought many that uh, partnered with him to exhaustion. They went through persecution, through beatings. So many times even Paul and then Epaphroditus and then Trophimus, they were in a state of weakness because they were beaten. They were tired. So Epaphroditus was sick and he was weak because of the work of Christ. He came close to death because of persecution. Let's move on to the eighth objection, I think is the last one for today. And then in our next session, we'll begin talking about Paul's thorn, which is exciting. But let's see Trophimus' sickness. The objection sounds like this. God doesn't heal everybody, even the great apostle Paul couldn't heal everybody, he left Trophimus sick in 2 Timothy chapter four verse 20. Let's see what that passage exactly says. 2 Timothy 4.20, Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus I have left in Miletus sick. Again, the Greek word used for sick in this passage is asteneo, is not any of those four words, malachia, arostos, gnosos, and now you will know all the Greek words about sickness. So asteneo means again weak or weakness and not a sickness or disease. That's important. More than likely this idea of sickness here had to do more with physical exhaustion as I said about Epaphroditus. From the travels that they did, he was weakened in his body. But Paul did not offer the slightest hint as to why Trophimus had gotten sick or had remained sick. So we cannot make a theology or a doctrine out of this verse. Paul has ascribed no fault or blame upon Trophimus, such as he must not have had enough faith, or there must have been sin in his life, or he must have missed it somewhere, as we hear today many times. Oh, you have sin in your life. Oh, you didn't pray enough. Oh, you did that and that. You did it with your own hand. You, you went there and did that, uh, so now you cannot expect God to heal you. That's not true. Paul felt no need to defend the doctrine of healing or his own ministry. He didn't express the idea that he had failed to get Trophimus healed. He just said that he was weak. He didn't mention that he failed, that he prayed, that he couldn't heal him. Moreover, Paul did not try to make this into a theological or philosophical issue at all. He simply stated the fact of Trophimus' illness as it existed at that moment in time. The same was with the multitude of people that he left unsaved where he left from. But he, that doesn't mean that it wasn't God's will for them to be saved. So Paul left many people unsaved. In the same way he left Trophy sick, he left many people unsaved. But that doesn't mean God's will and heart Was it for those people to be saved? Because the Bible says that God wishes for all people to come to repentance and to the knowledge of the truth. But not everybody comes. Now let's suppose and say that it was true that Paul left Trophimus indeed sick, of a sickness or a disease. When Paul left, does that deny the doctrine of the Bible on healing? Does that change anything? Does one person's experience... Change our view on on this doctrine? Or do we say, okay, this person didn't experience the fullness of the blessing of God. But it doesn't mean that it changes our doctrine, which is clear everywhere in the Bible. That God desires people to be healed. Amen? No one person's experience should change God's will on healing. So a person, experience, even if Trophimus was sick. That doesn't change God's heart for healing. It doesn't, we cannot make a doctrine out of this. Even the disciples had a failure while Jesus was on earth as we've seen earlier on a different objection. But then Jesus came and healed the boy as we saw earlier. So even Paul's failure to heal Trophimus doesn't mean that God's will wasn't for Trophimus to be healed. Remember that Paul was not God. Amen, he was still a man, he was not God. So even if he failed, the disciples had a failure, he could have had a failure, but that doesn't change God's will and his heart for healing, amen? I believe we will stop here and we will continue next time with more exciting things. Paul's turn, Timothy's stomach pains and some other exciting things. Today we covered six new objections the first one was Job's sufferings. The second one was Jesus' own hometown. The disciples had a the failure. Then Paul's physical infirmity in Galatia. Uh, the sickness of Epiphroditus and the sickness of Trophimus. And uh, We still have a few more to go. But until we see next time, may God bless you and give you more revelation and build you up in faith in the name of Jesus.